I'd like to pause for just a moment here before we get into the sermon to express my deep gratitude for the colleagues I serve with here at First Community Church. David Hett's prayer this morning uh, was absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. Thank you, David, very, mu- very much for that. Uh, David's been away for a few days uh, recovering, and then you seem to be full strength again, David. We're glad you're here. And every time I'm around Deb Lindsay, it's like I'm around Deb Lindsay, TV star. Does, does it just feel that way? I mean, it's just, I, just, I just get so impressed every time I'm around her. Maybe you saw the interview that we did about three months ago where she interviewed me. We, we sat right in here, right here in the corner of the sanctuary, and we were just chatting in a couple of chairs while we were waiting for Michael Barber to get ready, and then Michael gave us the signal, and all of a sudden it was Deborah Countess, TV person. <laughs> I say that in, 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 in goodwill of my friends. My friends David and, and Deb, I appreciate so much the music ministry that Ron Jenkins leads in this congregation, Paul and Kate and Jim, uh, all the many members of our staff team here. It really is a joy to be at, at First Community Church, to be surrounded by so much talent, and really to be also surrounded by a, a spirit of joy. I have a sense that, the, that God's spirit is alive and well, has been for many years in this church, and it's just, it's a, it's a great privilege to be here as your pastor. Let's take a moment to pray, please. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of those who have gathered here be acceptable in your sight. For indeed, you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I coached my son Stephen in rec league basketball from his fourth grade through seventh grade. That first year, we did not win a single game. We went zero and 15. But by the time we got to seventh grade, those boys had worked hard. They'd really learned some new skills. They understood the offense and the the defense we were trying to run. We ran what was called a help side defense. I can diagram that for you later if you'd like me to. We had, a, we had a wonderful time. The kids really worked hard in that seventh grade year. They actually got pretty good. They competed very well with every team. We were in every single game that we played. And in fact, we finished in fourth place in our league, which meant we were qualified to get into the playoffs. Our, our game, our first game in the playoffs came against the number one seed. The boys played great. We won in double overtime. It was awesome. Yes, you can cheer if you'd like to. Thank you. <laughs> I'm still, if you like, in fact, if you'd like, I can tell you all about that game, play by play by play. Well, two nights later, we played, we played in the championship game. I was pretty fired up. I was pretty excited. I said to Julie, I'm going to give the boys a little pep talk right before we play. And she said, really? <laughs> I said, yeah, I am. I'd seen Bruce Pearl. Maybe you know that name. He used to coach at the University of Tennessee. I'd seen him give a pregame talk. So I borrowed his three-point outline, and I filled it in with my own stuff. And I sat down with the boys one minute before tip-off. And I said, boys, we're going to play this game with passion. You're going to get out on that court, and you're going to give it everything you've got. You're not going to worry about being tired or or overworked or anything else. Get out there and play hard. Number two, boys, we're going to play with purpose. We know our offense. We know how to play help side defense. You're going to do what you do best, and you're going to give it your best. Third, we're going to play with poise. Don't worry about the referees. That's my job. Don't worry about the other coach. Don't worry about the other players. Don't even listen to your mom and dad in the stands. You just play within what you do. One, two, three, win. 
That story would be great if we'd won the game. <laughs> but I gotta tell you, it's one of the proudest moments in my life. Those, those boys, none of them were great athletes. None of them went on to be stars in school or anything else. But boy, did they work hard and play hard and come together as a team. There's, there's something about that, isn't it? When we give ourselves over to a purpose that matters, at least for the moment, we see ourselves becoming something new. Now, you might be wondering, why, why am I telling you that story? At the beginning of a sermon whose title is A Scary World Needs Light, well, I think Peter's words were kind of an ancient Near, near Eastern pep talk. It was his way of encouraging the church to get out there and give their best, knowing that it is indeed a scary world. Their world was at least as frightening as ours, if not more so. Peter wants them to know, as scared and as afraid as you might be, as difficult as it is possibly to follow, to follow Jesus, and it was hard, especially that first century, Christians were persecuted, Christians were ignored and, and shamed and pushed aside once in a while, not very often, but once in a while even to be a Christian meant you lost your life. And so the church is worried and scared, and Peter's giving them basically a pep talk, and he's saying, listen, rid yourselves of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and slander. Get rid of those things. Leave them behind. Move forward in faith. And by letting go of that stuff, your life, your family, even your church, reflect the love and the grace of Jesus, the, the one we follow. Now, no, I, I understand this is not deep existentialist philosophy, but it's simple and clear. Sometimes the best advice we can ever receive comes in that sort of a package. Be who you are. Let go of the ugly stuff, and your life will bloom before you. When I first became senior minister, of a church down in Atlanta, I was just 35 years old, youngest pastor, senior pastor in the life of that church. I was pretty proud of that, and then I ran into a buzzsaw in that congregation as I was leading. There was a serious issue on the table. The lay leadership was stuck. We weren't quite sure what to do. It was like we'd come to a fork in the road. One road led to, to, to destruction. The other road led to disaster. <laughs> and as the pastor, it was my job to provide advice on which way we should go. Well, I've, I felt as stuck as the lay leadership uh, did, so I called my friend Bill. He's a, a uh, congregational consultant, lives out on the West Coast. He's a, a professor now up at Seattle Pacific University, just a brilliant guy, understands church at a very deep level. So I called him up, and I described what was going on and what we were facing, all the things that were, were happening in the church and, and where we felt stuck, and he listened patiently and quietly. And then finally, after about 20 minutes or so, he said, well, Glenn, I, I want to say some things. I've always thought of you as a good guy. You're the, the sort of person who loves to enliven a party with a good story, make everybody laugh. I really appreciate being around you. You're like a good buddy of mine. You, you, you're the sort of person that would, would really, really be a good leader. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is going very well. <laughs> and then he said, you understand, don't you, that you've not been called to be a friend. You, you understand, right? that you're not there to be everybody's buddy. At that point, I was quiet on the phone. And he said in a clear voice, listen, your church did not call you to be their buddy. They called you to be their pastor. Now go and be the leader that they need. And with that, he hung up the phone. It was hard to hear, but it was true. 
You see, the issue really wasn't all that complex. The advice didn't need to be that difficult either. It was simple and clear. Most of the time in life, the complexity that creates issues is not the concern, it's the clarity and the obviousness that really gets our attention. The same thing is true in the Bible. Mark Twain famously said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand that really stick in my craw. Now that may be a legend that Twain really said that, but whoever said it, there's truth there. We may never understand the, the depth and the richness of the imagery in the book of Revelation. In the Gospel of Mark, there's all kinds of strange language about the second apocalypse and the coming of Christ again. It's really unusual, difficult to decipher. Uh, the laws that are so dense in the book of Deuteronomy, we may never ever able to be able to, to comprehend what's going on there. But today's text, this little letter from Peter to an early church is pretty clear. Leave behind. Put away malice, slander, and envy. Let go of that stuff. And your life, your church, you'll find new hope and a new way of living. And then Peter goes on and he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into new life. Again, nothing inc incredibly profound, just a nice, simple, basic bit of instruction. If your life is focused on spiritual practices, he's saying. If you take a moment every day to be quiet or to meditate, to read scripture slowly and carefully, or, or to pray, or to be generous, or to simply make sure that every day you smile at at least one person. If you take these spiritual practices seriously and practice just one of them, Peter is basically saying you'll have a new life. We know it's true. It's so simple and so obvious, and yet sometimes so difficult to practice, isn't it? I've seen this at work in, in sometimes very surprising places. My, my senior year of high school, my parents sent me to a very small, private, fundamentalist, church-sponsored school. Now, there's a long story about why that was true, and I'll tell you that at another time. But this, this school and their theology was extraordinarily strict, very rigid. But at that school, I met this cute little girl named Julie. She was mad at her boyfriend. His name was Curdy. It's a true story. It was Curdy. She sat down next to me. We talked for a little bit. I said, you know what? If you're this upset with Curdy, he's treating you so poorly, why don't you go out with me? <laughs> That'll make him jealous. She said, I think that's a good idea. We went out a couple more times. A week later, I was preaching at the chapel service. The school always had a Wednesday chapel service where they invited one of the students to preach, and they asked me to preach, and so I did. And I used as my text 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And I walked out in front of the pulpit, and I walked right down there onto the floor, and Julie was sitting right about the fourth pew, and she was sitting right over there, and I just looked at her and gave my sermon, and at the very end, I looked right at her and smiled and said, and remember, love never ends. <laughs> yeah, well, 38 years later, it's still true. So thank you very much. We'll celebrate our 38th anniversary this, this coming Friday. Well, I've told you all that because I want to tell you about, about Mr. Bishop. Mr. Bishop was the boys' dean at the school. He was a tough old Marine. I called him an ex-Marine one time, and he, that was the last time I did that. There's no ex-Marines. You're a Marine for life. 
like the theology that that school proclaimed, Mr. Bishop seemed to be very mean, very rigid, very, very strict. But after a few weeks, I discovered that once you peeled all that stuff away, deep down inside, he was nothing more than a kind, caring, gracious man who, who only wanted to help the boys under his care. And he helped me so much this, that year. It was unbelievable help. It was funny to see how <clears throat> the theology kind of got forgotten when Mr. Bishop dealt with his boys. All that rigidness and strictness, that was ignored. Instead, what was emphasized in the way he treated us was grace, forgiveness, and love. Well, a few years ago, I got a call from one of the, one of the alumni. Do you know that Mr. Bishop is dying? He's at a hospital down in Florida. So I picked up the phone, and I called down to Florida, to the hospital. They put me right into his room. He answered the phone. Same voice. Hello. <laughs> Mr. Bishop, this is Glenn Miles. Glenn Miles, you better be nice to our sweet Julie. <laughs> we spoke for a few more minutes. I assured him that I was doing all I could to be nice to Julie. But it was also clear that he was not well. In fact, he would die two days later. But before we hung up the phone, he said, Glenn, let me tell you something. In my life, I've discovered that love is the answer. The only thing you need to do is love your wife, love Julie, love your family, love your church. And with that, he said goodbye. His words ring true even now, maybe, maybe especially now. At the end of the reading today, Peter tells the church, you are God's own people. Do you hear the courage that's, that's implied in that text? You are God's own people. When you leave all this malice and envy and slander and all that stuff behind and you let God's spiritual milk, God's love and grace define who we are and encourage us, suddenly we discover courage, bravery. Yes, life is hard. Yes, ugly things will happen. Terrible things will occur. For sure, the world is going to need love grace and forgiveness, and that's why we come to church. To be inspired, to be challenged, and then to be sent out as God's own people to bring light to a scary world. That's why strong and vibrant congregations like this one here in Columbus is needed so desperately. The less we have to deal with all the silly stuff like envy and slander and, and, and malice and all the rest, the stronger will be a voice for love and grace in the world. And think about the world for a moment. This past week, we saw the ugliness of another act of gun violence. Thank God there was a security detail that was there that kept dozens of our leaders in Congress from being murdered. Not long after that, on the opposite side of the country, in San Francisco, a gunman walked into a UPS office and took three lives. Is this a dark and scary world? We don't have to look very far. For a day or so, the ugly and mean, nasty rhetoric that's coming from both sides of the aisle, if we're honest, finally faded away, and we spoke words of support and encouragement and hope and freedom and, and all of the rest, but it's, it didn't take too long. <clears throat> it didn't take too long before the, 
the malice returned. What, what, what would happen? What would happen if Peter's words could be sent to Washington? What would happen if, if those same words would be adopted by our cable news networks? Their shows would be much, much shorter. <laughs> it's time for the United States to put away malice and slander and envy and have a conversation, recognizing that, yes, oftentimes our, our opinions and our views are, are on complete opposite different ends of the spectrum, but at the end of the conversation, if we listen carefully and quietly to the other, we can both find ourselves better for the, for the conversation. This is why a church like this is so needed, especially First Community. Uh, I, I know about the curriculum that we developed here several years ago, Faith and American Politics. And in fact, I'm going to be in a couple of conversations about that same curriculum in the next 10 days. And I'm so glad to be doing it. The timing is as, is as great as it ever could possibly be. We need to continue to provide a safe place where folks can come and open their hearts, open their minds, pouring out their own views while listening carefully and thoughtfully to the other persons. Do we have some strong opinions in this church? I've only been here three months, but yeah, I've encountered some of them. We absolutely do, certainly. But look what happens when two people of differing viewpoints sit down over a cup of coffee and listen to the other without malice or envy or slander. And if the Church of Jesus Christ is caught up with the message of that same Jesus, our church and our lives, our individual lives, will show it. His message was authentic and real. It came from a place of love. The world doesn't need angry and judgmental Christianity. No, it's time for that to end. It's time for the church to emulate the life of Christ in all that it says and does. That's easier said than done, though. So often we're tempted into getting into... Oh, tearing each other down rather than building each other up. It's, it's much easier to tear something apart than it is to build something. Maybe you've heard of the, the Jesuit priest, Anthony DeMello. He had a favorite story that he loved to tell. There were two taxidermists on their way to a taxidermist convention walking down a street. When they walked in front of a taxidermist shop, they looked in the window, and sitting there was an owl. They stopped, and they began to critique the owl. Its eyes are too closely put together. Its feathers are rumpled there in the back, and the, the wings just don't look quite right, and his beak is misshapen, and, well, his feet aren't, aren't, aren't exactly put on the, on the pedestal in the right way. And as they finish their critique, the old owl turned his head, <laughs> smiled and winked at the two taxidermists. A story describes the way too many churches are tempted to behave. Sometimes we're only good at tearing down and not building up. John Ortberg writes, The world is tired of Christians who proclaim that they know the right beliefs and are committed to the right values, but in whom there is no grace. The world is tired of angry, judgmental Christians in whom there is no grace. How does the old song go? Tis grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. Our world needs the light of grace. Last week, I led a funeral for a lifelong member of First Community Church, Dr. Robert Rao. He lived to be 95 years of age. 
It was a long and glorious life, one that was filled with many honors and degrees and wards and fellowships and more. He was a highly respected surgeon here in, in Columbus. He was well known in the medical field, not just around the country, but around the world, studied with the finest surgeons ever known to, to medicine in the last 50 years. Also was known as a, as a grandpa who loved his grandkids, as a dad who gave himself fully to his children, as a husband who gave himself to his wife every day for 63 years. The, the stories were, <clears throat> were amazing. I received notes from all of his children last week describing their dad for me, telling me what it was like to live with him. They told all those stories about his great success as a physician, but the most touching part of everything they wrote was that love, that love he had for them, for the grandchildren, and for their mother, Eleanor. One of his sons, Steve, concluded a beautifully written essay that he sent to me with four words. We love our dad. I said to them at the graveside, there's no parent in the world who could want anything more than that simple declaration. We love our dad. We love our mom. Finer words could not be spoken. They are a summary of a life well-lived, one that was driven by a desire to serve and to care for others. As we gathered at the, at the graveside, we stood right next to the casket. Family gathered around, a few friends were there. And I closed the service with some words from my favorite theologian, a man named Michael Warren. Warren says that if you want to understand someone's spiritual life, don't listen to the content of their prayers while they're alive. Don't evaluate how biblically uh, skillful they are, how much they understand and know about the Bible. That really won't tell you much about their spirituality, no. Instead, listen to the words of their family and friends when they stand for the last time to say goodbye at their graveside. It is in those words that you'll hear how great their spiritual life may have been. Steve said, we love our dad. When your family and your friends stand at your grave, what will they say? What will they recall? What words will come to mind? Will they see you and think of the malice and the envy and the slander and the... Or will they remember the love you gave the grace you received, the forgiveness you extended. First Community Church, when we leave those things like malice and slander and the rest behind, we will become the light that a dark and scary world needs. In the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, may it be so.